0: You're listening to the ODI Podcast. I'm Emma Thwaites, and with me are Anna Scott and Renata Sampson, who are two of the co-authors of a recent report produced by the ODI for the RSA. It's called About Data, About Us, and was also in partnership with Luminate. Okay, so um, Renata, how did the project About Data, About Us come about?
1: The About Data About Us project is a joint project that the ODI have done with the Royal Society of Arts and Luminate and it came about partly through a a desire to talk about whether people feel as though ownership or rights and responsibilities about the data about them is the way to go. So uh, Anna and I had a great time working with our colleagues at the RSA and Luminate where we held two focus groups and one workshop over the course of this year 2019. Mm -hmm. And how did you choose the people that were involved? The RSA worked with an independent organisation where they selected a range of people based on questions about uh, political backgrounds and also engagement with the Internet. So we, we have to be very straightforward that we only spoke with 50 people and they were within the Greater London area, but obviously London's a melting pot of people from all around the world, so we had a broad range of people, different ages, different backgrounds, different political views, different levels of engagement with with their digital online internet-related lives. And we found, certainly through the conversations that we had, that, that people are very much on a broad spectrum of how they use the internet. Uh, and that's a really important point. We th- There was an absolute mix of people who were very, very optimistic about their internet and, uh, and online engagement, and others who were much more cautious. But what we found, even amongst that group, was that those that are cautious about one thing are very open about other aspects. Those that are very open and very positive about certain elements of their online lives also have levels of caution, or areas where they feel they would like to have greater control or, or more say about what happens to the data about them. So, whilst it was a small group of people, it was an interesting cross cross section of Greater London society. So it was lived experience rather than than pure research. Yes, absolutely. It yeah. was it was conversations, and uh, and we went in very much with very broad very broad conversations such as the first question we asked was, you know, w- w- what do you think data is? And what we found and what's genuinely really fascinating about this this piece of work is that people's levels of comprehension and literacy about data were actually much higher than I think society, policymakers, uh, journalists or even experts in the data area have given people credit for. We actually found that w- we had very little prodding that we had to give or suggestions or stories we had to tell that everybody in the room very very quickly was like well data's data's this, I can't, and very straight away like I don't think I can own data or you know data's quite abstract or oh well you know data's just that thing that we only own it when it's inside us but as soon as we put it out there then it's not ours anymore there was no prodding from us about that and from my perspective having been talking about this for well over a decade I kind of fell off my chair about it because historically I've had to walk into a room and have that and and give those prods have be the, the expert in it and I certainly was impressed with what we heard back that people really do understand that data is an integral part of them as well as the infrastructure that we talk about at the ODI.
0: Anna it sounds very much like people's understanding of data has moved on that the subtleties and nuances that came through in these interviews somewhat surprised you.
2: Well, it did. We've been working with Nuance for a while uh, at the ODI. I started five years ago when open data was a relatively new concept. And we quite quickly went from saying open data is brilliant and will always bring about great outputs to thinking, actually, there's a huge amount of nuance that we need to keep in mind here, which is why we created the data spectrum, which goes from closed to shared to open and helps people understand where data should go on that spectrum and the fact that that should always a thought you have and it's not necessarily always going to be open or always going to be closed. There's, There's a decision that has to happen. So we spoke to people who wanted more nuanced conversations, I think. And, you know, Renata said that lots of them got, they grasped it quite quickly, but they also needed a lot of explanation. I think that's what's been missed a lot from the narrative around this stuff, particularly around how people get engaged with it. People haven't had the opportunity to think, in a nuanced and meaningful way with some help you know, to, to understand the concepts and be engaged in the concepts as well. So I, was, I wasn't surprised in that sense.
0: You, the, or the ODI, has quite a, a track record in involving people in developing its outputs and its tools, particularly when it's trying to explain sometimes what might appear to be quite complex subject matters. How important do you think that is?
2: hugely important I think design is a hugely important aspect to it too though so the way in which we've got lots of people to be involved in these things has usually happened through good design the data ethics canvas for example is something that's the result of lots of different people feeding into the process but the idea is that you allow for a nuanced conversation each question leads to a conversation each question leads to another question you know we're not telling people what to think we're telling them to ask questions and answer questions
1: And what was was interesting about what Anna's just been saying is that um, whilst there was definitely a a level of comprehension and literacy about data that uh, I... I demonstrated that I was uh, enthused and encouraged by. Anna's point that s- things still needed explanation is actually really important because we were finding very much that when the people were demonstrating fear and worry and also resignation about how data about them is being used. And that's not surprising if, if you think about why the literacy level has suddenly increased. Part of it, I would argue, is that last year, in 2018, we had the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. And then three, months later the, the launch of GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Now that really for the first time was when every single newspaper had headlines, persistent front page coverage of data. You know there had been data scandals before but they hadn't really landed with people but all of a sudden, having to understand data protection issues maybe for their work, but, but also uh, understanding that all of a sudden, the, the data that we were putting up on Facebook to share with friends and family was being used for, for other purposes was a, was a real concern. So I'd say that's partly why literacy has improved and understanding has improved. But coming back round to the point about explanations, we talked about open data, we tried to talk about data that was being used, that's always been gathered, but and how it's used to help make good societal decisions. And that really wasn't landing with people. They were still very tied up with the, well, are you going to re-identify me? Uh, what's the risk to me? I don't want that data to be shared. And so there, there was... A, 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 That was fascinating to us as well, I think, which led us to then talk about how we could talk more broadly about the different types of data that exist about
2: us. Yeah. I mean, what was really quite straightforward to to see quite quickly, I think, was that when people, like you said, when people were scared or felt angry, they couldn't really articulate why and when they would be angry, when they wouldn't be angry. So they... There were a few really interesting points made by people. So, for example, someone said, I think we need a dial. I'd like to be able to change the dial in terms of how much I share and when. And, and it, you know, I think it was hard for them to feel frustrated about the concept of having data being used and shared without them really understanding it or knowing about it. And the idea that they would just be angry, like, wholesale at that I don't think even they were very pleased with that feeling because they wanted to be able to think, you know, sometimes maybe contributing data about myself is useful and good and I'd like to know how that can, how that can be ethical, how can I have proper agency over that
1: how do I understand the benefit and who, chooses the ben- who determines the benefit was one thing that was said to us quite a lot. You know, yeah, all right, I'm happy to share data about me and about my family, but A, explain to me what it's for. B, give me the choice as to where, when I can say, actually, I don't want to do that any longer. But also, uh, lots of people said to us, well, who's decided the benefit of this then? Uh, and I want to know is that it, because if it's a politician, who's that really benefiting? Is it benefiting them or is it benefiting me? And so there's a lot of chat always around data about uh, public benefit or societal benefit. But there was a real pushback of, well, well, tell us how, tell us why, tell us who. And it also depends as well. You mentioned before about the different categorisations
0: of data, that like you've come up with a different way of stratifying the different types of data, and people's views are different depending on the sort of data that has been talked about. Can you tell us a bit about the, the those different sort of buckets or categories
1: that, that came out of the discussions? Yeah, so I mean it, this is, it's slightly awkward because obviously we, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, in fact we're not doing that at all. The four types of data about us was a way of trying to give language to the next level of conversations that we were having the workshops so we talk about data as though it's sort of this blob it's just this thing but it's quite important that we try and understand that there are different types of data about us so within gdpr we have personal data which tends to be the identify identifying data names addresses uh, telephone numbers email that sort of thing and there's a protection around that but that's predominantly data that we understand we have to share in order to get our parcels delivered to us or whatever. Sensitive data, special category data is gender, race, religion, political uh, memberships, etc. This has another layer of protection around it under the GDPR. And again, it might be data about us as individuals, but it's also data that's shared about us. It's another layer of identification, but we share those categories with other people. What we found that people were most antagonised and worried and reluctant to share is what we've defined as behavioural data. This is data that's never traditionally been gathered about us in the way that it is now. So this is our likes, our dislikes, our, our shopping, online shopping habits. Um, it can also be data that can be gathered in the physical world from uh, CCTV uh, cameras, for example. Um, but it's the stuff that is used to make inferences about us or machine-learn decisions about us. It's the stuff that is used to personalise services to us, so people understood that there was a benefit but they felt extremely uncomfortable about um, not being able to challenge that, or also the decisions being made about them being inaccurate, which is why we were told by them we're not robots, the person I am today isn't necessarily the person I was yesterday, it's not the person I am tomorrow, please stop defining me without me being able to challenge the decisions you're making. And then finally the societal, societal data, which um, uh, as we've worked through this it's the sort of data that's always been gathered about, a census data for example. The data that shouldn't specifically be about us, it should be about the movements or the, the behaviours of all of us that can be used to make good decisions for society. So it, the, the, the key to that is that it shouldn't be about re-identifying the individual, it should be about how decisions can be made about, uh, about society as a whole. And where people felt predominantly pretty comfortable about that sort of data being used about them, as long as they understood the benefit and that was all made very clear. Um, But it's really critical that the organisations that are using that data, the focus should not be on re-identification and people again felt very strongly, I don't want to be re-identified.
2: Can you explain what that means for people who don't know the term?
1: Yeah, so re-identified is that you wouldn't be able to pick out of a big data set that it's Renata, or that it's Anna, or that it's Emma. There's a lot of chat about anonymization of data. We, we all need to really understand that there is no such thing as 100% anonymization. You can always, any piece of data about you can always lead back to you, but the emphasis shouldn't be on pinpointing uh, or picking an individual out of a data set. It should be about the decisions that can be made as the data, of the data set as a whole. And where possible, it shouldn't be personal data. I'd like to pick up on that question around anonymisation, actually.
0: Because I think it is... It's We hear this term a lot, particularly um, in respect to very sensitive data. So people talk about you know, medical records and, um, like you said, identifying people's sexual orientation, potentially, or their religion or their political affiliation, the response to that that is often given is the data has been anonymised. Is it just the case that we have to get used to the fact that if data is going to, about us is going to be used thoughtfully and well, we just have to be comfortable with the notion that it's never going to be completely safe, in inverted commas?
1: I think we have to be quite careful about going down that route, because this is, it's not about being comfortable about being re-identified, the the key is, and look, with the Open Data Institute, we want data sets to be open for, for greater societal use and value. But we shouldn't be re-identified. It shouldn't be about feeling comfortable that you might be picked out of a data set. The key is looking towards how we can use data that isn't about the identifiers. It's not about people, or persons rather. I, I think we have to be very careful about encouraging people to feel safe about being able to be re-identified. That's definitely, from my perspective, not the route we should go down. We should be respecting data protection, we should be encouraging, uh, as this work has shown, rights and responsibilities, and it should be about greater decision-making about non-personal data rather than personal data. But that's just my view.
0: One of the things that we've talked about a little bit is the ODI's role in enabling understanding of data and of issues that relate to data. You produced a film for this piece of work which is quite creative and unusual and I just wondered, Anna, if you could tell tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that.
2: Well it was part of the brief really, both RSA and Illuminate wanted something creative to help to engage people so we talked a lot about what that kind of output should look like. So for this we decided to, we worked with some designers, some storytellers, um, and we collaborated on it over the course of a few months. It was quite quite quick actually towards the end. It was a really, really brilliant process because we were able to think differently enough to try some quite challenging approaches. So we ended up going with a shadowographer, I think is the term, called Drew, who's excellent, who under the sort of direction of our creative director Zoe Philpot, created some animals essentially, shadow animals with his hands. Um, And with them, we we told some stories, some narratives that came up in the course of the workshop, so different people's perspectives. And using animals was a nice way of doing it because to look at an animal, you don't necessarily immediately feel like you're the same or different. Whereas a, a person, you might think, well, I'm roughly the same age or the same demographic. So we wanted people to see themselves potentially in all of these characters. So that was the approach we took.
1: The, the, the interesting thing about the shadows was, um, you know, we have these data shadows. Data shadows, we are physical beings, but now data is uh, not in a looming, scary, Halloweeny kind of way. It's intangible. Yeah, exactly. It's an integral part of us, just as our shadow arguably is but again because this piece of work was very much about talking to people the scripts um, that are very short we took the language we took the conversations we took the things that were said to us uh, by the people in the in that we spoke to uh um, um so um yeah we've got bunny rabbits talking about trainers and an elephant talking about uh uh not liking being tracked uh um
2: and the use of storytelling was quite integral to the to the work itself because during the workshops in order for people to understand the concepts or to, to grasp the concepts as opposed to it being this kind of intangible quite frightening concept sort of data in in the abstract we had to create some scripts that they could read out with each other that would make them feel like actually you know this is this affects me day to day I've got an Alexa at home you know and maybe it does listen and maybe there are things that I'm not comfortable about that but you know bringing it into a very day-to-day scenario was something that we spent a long time trying to do properly
1: trying to make GDPR sound um, like something people talk about in the staff room or on the train or whatever well it is (laughs)
2: frankly it is I mean People talk about it all the time. Yeah, we've,
1: we've both subsequently heard conversations uh, that sort of took us by surprise just by being out and about. Mm. Uh, out and about people suddenly talking about data and you think, oh, yeah, of course. It is now part of all of the conversations we have. You um,
0: you mentioned, actually, that the, the, the script for the for the film came directly from the contributions the people who took part in they the They were interviews. abridged, but,
2: yeah, more yeah. or less, yeah.
0: Do, do you have a favourite? What was the, the favourite...
2: Well, the real, a real quote.
0: A real one, or one that you used in the film? I think just... my
2: my favourite quote from the whole thing was probably uh one of the the participants in the workshop said that the way I see it, uh getting getting my data back off the internet would be a bit like trying to get all the piss back out of a swimming pool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we bravely put it in the report. We did. We did because you know. <laughs> It's so apologies it's a to line. anyone who's <laughs> easily offended, but... But it. It, but it is a great line, and, and the We're Not Robots, that was said to us. People were genuinely very eloquent and very passionate ab- about all of this. I mean, the, the conversations... I think we were both completely knackered after the after the initial focus groups, because the conversation just was thick and fast. I mean, coming back to the idea of ownership, we'd spent quite a long time beforehand saying, oh, you know, how are we, how are we going to talk to people about the idea that data isn't just ours, that it's about us, and that therefore consent or sharing of data is, is a complicated issue? How do we talk about the, the, the fact that, On our mobile phones, for example, we we hold data about so many other people, be it in photos or text messages or just our contacts book. Um, Will people get this? And and they said it to us before we had, had the chance to say it to them. And what was also fascinating was that the question, do you think you can own your data? It was a small number of people who lifted their hands up and said yes. And immediately the tables were like, really? One person said to us that, uh, they're like, but the stuff that I buy online, like the music I buy online or the videos or the computer games I buy online, they're not really mine. I might have paid for them, but I don't own it. So if I can't own that, how can I even own the data about me? Which was a beautiful way, I thought, of, of putting that. And the conversation is genuinely also about GDPR. There wasn't anyone we spoke to who didn't know what the General Data Protection Regulation was. And not everybody had used it, but certainly we, we had uh, examples of people using subject access requests or understanding about the, the, the right to, to, to deletion and talking very eloquently about that.
2: thing is, I mean, I, I believe that GDPR is really important. I think there are lots of things that need improving about... How, I mean... It, I studied human rights and I still believe passionately that human rights are important. They're not always upheld, but that's often the fault of the governments that don't uphold them. So I think the same, you know, in the same way GDPR hasn't yet been properly, I think, implemented. And I think there's a lot of improvement to be done, particularly around how, how things are more consistent with the experience you get using uh, websites run by companies. How, how they handle that is still quite patchy, I think. But I what I want to say that I don't think everyone understands GDPR. I mean, we it was a group of 50 people in London, right? And yes, most, if not all of them, had heard the term. Um, and yes, we move in circles where lots of people understand it. I mean, I presented this work in Helsinki at the My Data Conference and people people applauded when GDPR came up on, on the screen in, in sort of flashy lights as we did it in the video because they care so much about it. And that's great, but there are people who don't understand it or just know it as this annoying thing that's, that's a bit ugh, clunky or has, has made them have to do a really hard thing for their job or whatever. So I think there's a huge communications piece to be done, huge, in explaining the purpose for it to people who don't necessarily do it for their job or, or do but still don't understand the benefit.
1: Anna is absolutely right. Look, what's been fascinating about this piece of work is it's challenged,
2: I think, the view
1: that we've heard from policymakers, as I've already indicated, uh, and journalists, that people are complacent, that people, so often we've seen from surveys, and we blogged about this in the middle of the project, that, you know, 75% of people are really happy to give away their data for a a benefit, for 10% off or whatever. Uh, And the the same survey might say 65% of people are really worried about their privacy. But the headline is always, People are really enthused about sharing data for, for something that's a bit Weak. Sometimes, we mustn't, with this work, fall into the same trap of suddenly going. Everybody understands everything, okay. uh, um, and, and that's, that's hugely important. But what is positive, I think, and and we s- we will continue to see this because other organisations and governments and so on are, are starting to do wider engagement with the public and people about this data stuff. And we shouldn't now assume that if people say, "I don't get it" or "I don't understand terms and conditions," that it means that they they don't they don't get it they do there is a level of understanding this is just the start of increased learning but we, we anna's right we shouldn't now assume that everybody's level of knowledge and engagement is the same it's not we are all on a spectrum of, of, of knowledge
2: and, and sorry yeah. and a- another trap that we could easily fall into is saying that everyone believes this or feels this way about it which the, the results showed that they just want nuance. They just want to be able to have nuanced conversations and and change their mind as well. I mean, it's not like, again, we're not robots. We don't have one one feeling about something and for that to then be the feeling and for that to be applied to similar kinds of things. I mean, it's, but it's, a techni- it's technically difficult to to enable that kind of thing. But I think it's something that we need to think more about. Personally, I'm really enthused by the amount of creative approaches that are kind of popping up in different parts around the world by different sectors that engage people in different ways which are creative which are interesting that involve storytelling or involve some kind of participation i mean so some extreme examples i suppose from one to the other would be the finnish broadcasting company (laughs) they've created something called troll factory which is a simulation game And you have to use tools like botnets or internet memes to spread fear, bias and suspicion. But it puts you in the position of doing that. So you fundamentally have a different view after that of what it is to be a a troll on the internet and how that kind of thing happens. But I think that's a really interesting exercise.
1: Anna and I uh, attended a a conference a few weeks after the report was published. And we sat and listened to all these different panels. And every panel pretty much was saying, well, we, we really need to listen to what people have to say about this. And we kind of shook our heads at one another, sort of like, well, we have listened. Uh, we've gone and spoken to them, and a few. Uh, and we need to speak to them more. Like abs- abs- absolutely, and we now need to listen. But also, we shouldn't assume that the public have the solutions. The experts haven't got the solutions. Neither have the public. But but together, if we listen to one another, um, rather than being dismissive, we should be able to start to work towards uh, legislative or regulatory goals, or also maybe just an understanding that some of this stuff you can't solve, some of it's going to outlive, outlive all of us, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, I don't <laughs> subscribe
2: to that. Um, well, I, mean, I think it's interesting that the, the ICA report about facial recognition came out quite recently, and exactly that, like, it's exposed a complete lack of, of proper regulation laws, codes of conduct that, that we can apply to this sort of stuff. But going back to the event that we went to, it was about ad tech, and, I mean, this is a kind of case in point lots of the, I don't tend to speak to advertisers very often, I, I don't have many friends who are advertisers or work in advertising, so I don't necessarily know much about it. And speaking to advertisers, there were, there were some there, and they said, we don't understand ad tech, we don't like it, we don't want to participate in it, but we have to, because it was developed in this kind of opaque flurry, and suddenly it exists, and why, why are not we having those conversations more widely?
0: I'm going to be horrible here and date stamp this, uh, this podcast because we are just about to have a general election, mm-hmm. of course. And it, we couldn't have this discussion without mentioning political advertising, of course. I don't think that you touched on that in the interviews, but I wonder whether there's anything from this piece of work that gives any hint about how people feel around that whole topic.
2: Well, I mean, again, we spoke to a handful of people in London, but it was still really interesting to hear people talk about the difference between being targeted for, for products um, or services and then being targeted with specific types of news. They really didn't like, well, the people we spoke to didn't like the idea of news being tailored to them. They'd rather trainers. You know, trainers are fine, not the news. So I guess, you know, from our work, that would be the indication.
1: Yeah, uh, very much so. People's behaviours and people's concerns have been gathered for political advertising for decades, right? Both of Obama's campaigns were uh, structured around former Silicon Valley experts trying to pinpoint what people wanted to have, what messaging landed well with certain people. And that used to be a case of radio spots, then TV spots, and now it's internet advertising. There's still a lot of work I think to be done to, to actually determine how influential it is but the critical point from this piece of work was people don't like assumptions about them being made. Now if that's an assumption about you live on this street and you've ticked these different likes on various social media sites so we're now going to target this adverts specifically to you. I think the, f- the, the fact that this has been front page news for quite a while, people will be suspicious. Some people will always be influ- influenced by stuff, but we've always been influenced by party political broadcast, by, by general advertising anyway. But definitely the key takeaway from this report which we didn't ask this specific question of. But don't target me, is what we were told. Don't make decisions based on who you think I am. Ask me. So whilst lots of politicians might have the door shut in their face when they go and round their constituencies, I think people will prefer that direct face-to-face conversation than they will having an assumption made about them via an advert that's targeted at them.
0: Let's hope the political leaders are listening to this. People will have an opportunity to hear a lot more about the report, the ODI's work in this area, and from some of the partners that we've worked with at the ODI Summit.
1: Yes, I will be chairing a session about ownership versus rights and responsibilities, where we'll have the ICO talking about rights.
2: That's the Information Commissioner's Office, for those thank who you, don't the, the
1: <laughs> 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 Yes, thank you. The Information Commissioner's Office will be representing rights and responsibilities. We'll have a company called Streamer talking about ownership, and we'll have Kitty from Luminate representing society and, and also being able to talk even more about this, this piece of work. And we will be showing, we'll be showing the video. So uh, prepare yourself for hand puppets
2: and GDPR chat. (laughs) And if you can't go to the summit, it's all online. Yep.
0: (laughs) And if you do want to find out more about the summit, about Renata's talk and about the report, you can find all of that, plus loads of other information on theodi.org. Anna and Renata, thanks very much.
1: Thank you.